The Lord be with you. Let us pray. This is a prayer for the mission of the church. O God of all the nations of the earth, remember the multitudes who have been created in your image but have not known the redeeming work of our Savior Jesus Christ. And grant that by the prayers and labors of your holy church, they may be brought to know and worship you as you have been revealed in your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Where have all you people been? How great is it to be back? Yeah. Somebody told me that we were having a traffic problem outside, and I thought, what a wonderful problem to have for a change. Well, I'm glad to see you all, and I'm delighted that we could be back on this Rally Sunday. Uh, I know that the world is still in a state of confusion and chaos, but thanks be to God, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what we're here to celebrate this morning. Normally for the Rector's Forum, I teach a class on a book of the Bible. That's generally the way we operate here. Um, but I thought we would do something a little bit different um, at the beginning of this semester as we start anew. COVID has certainly been very challenging to all of us. Uh, this has been a very challenging season for you as individuals and for us collectively as the body of Christ. But there have been some good things that have come out of it. Um, it's really remarkable that we have continued to see growth here at St. Philip's in spite of COVID. Uh, Brian McGreevy is in charge of our newcomers and our visitor ministry. Brian, how many newcomers do we have right now in the pipeline who are interested in perhaps membership at St. Philip's? So, when you think about that, 120 people in spite of a pandemic, in spite of the fact for a good portion of a year and a half or two years, we were going virtual, and yet God is continuing to bring people here. They're drawn here. Uh, we've been able to expand our reach, actually, by our virtual ministry. We have people that watch us in England, so across the, across the Atlantic Ocean. We have people that are across the country. We have people all over the world, really, are tuning in to see what's happening at St. Philip's. And so we can be very grateful. This is a classic example of Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him, and are the called according to his purpose. So we know that God is faithful even in the midst of difficult times, and it's his faithfulness that we cling to today. But this reminded me that this would be a good time to teach a course on Anglicanism, because we have all of these people coming in, and I don't mind telling you, the vast majority of them are coming from non-Anglican backgrounds. We have people that are coming from Presbyterian backgrounds, and Lutheran backgrounds, and Methodist backgrounds, and Baptists, and we've got a few recovering Roman Catholics, and all these people that are coming in from all of these various traditions. And they're drawn here to St. Philip's. Now, they may be drawn for any number of reasons. It may be something that they hear from the pulpit. It may be the music that they're hearing on Sunday morning. It may be the fellowship that they are beginning to enjoy in this place. But whatever it is, they're being drawn to this particular place at this particular time in history. And of course, it's our job to feed them. But when they come, for many of them, this is something different. Uh, I was talking to somebody who is a former Roman Catholic, and she told me that while the liturgy is very familiar to her, that is to say the style of worship, what she heard coming out of the pulpit, and she was here on Christmas Eve for the very first time, she said, it's not like anything I've ever heard in my life. 
And we've got others who are coming who are from Presbyterian and Baptist background, and they said that what they're hearing coming out of the pulpit sounds quite familiar, but the way we worship is very different. It's very moving. It's, it's very challenging to their spirit, and it challenges their mind as well as their soul. And so I thought to myself, well, this would be a good time for us to talk about what it means to be an Anglican church because we are indeed unique. And for many people, this is something that they are drawn to, but they don't really understand what we're all about. So that's what I want to do for this semester, at least. I want to begin to talk a little bit about the appeal of Anglicanism. What does it mean to be an Anglican church? Let me give you just a brief definition of what an Anglican church is. This is, this is the most basic definition. An Anglican church is a church that can trace its lineage back to the church in England. Not necessarily to the church of England, but to the church in England. And you'll see why I make that distinction in just a moment. But an Anglican church is a church that traces its lineage back to the land of the Angles and the Saxons. That's where that term Anglican comes from. So it's an English church. But what we're also going to see is that while it is an English church, it is a church that has a worldwide ministry and appeal. In fact, many people who have grown up in the United States are totally unfamiliar with an Anglican church. They, they may have heard of the Episcopal church, they may have heard of an Anglican church, but they really don't have any idea as to what it is. And that's because Anglicanism in North America is a relatively small denomination. It's not well known. Certainly the Baptists outnumber us, the Methodists outnumber us, the Lutherans outnumber us, and so Anglicanism is not something that many people on the whole are familiar with. But actually, Anglicanism is the third largest body of Christians in the world. There are over a billion Roman Catholics in the world. That's the largest Christian denomination by far. Behind them would be the Eastern Orthodox. That would be the Greek and the Russian and the Coptic Orthodox and all the various Orthodox groups. They're the second largest body of Christians in the world. But the third largest body of Christians in the world are Anglicans. So this is the third largest Christian denomination in the world. And while we are relatively small in North America, we are huge in other parts of the world, particularly in Africa and places like that, where there are literally 20, 30, 40 million in a single diocese in some places in Africa. So this is a church that started off in England, but it is a church that has a worldwide appeal, and it is the third largest body of Christians in the world. And then you have all the different Protestant denominations that follow after that. So it is a worldwide communion. And it does have an appeal. Even if you're not familiar with Anglicanism, you are probably familiar with Anglicans. You just didn't recognize that they were Anglicans. So for example, who's that man there on the right? Everybody knows that that's the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. That is the great evangelist who has preached to more people about the gospel of Jesus Christ than anyone in all of history. Isn't that extraordinary? He's preached to more people than anyone in all of history, the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. But that's one of his closest friends standing next to him. Does anybody know who that is? That is. That's the Reverend Dr. John Stott. He's considered to be the dean of evangelical biblical teachers. John Stott was for many years the rector of All Souls Church, Langham Place, London. And he has an appeal that stretches far beyond Anglicanism to Christians all across the globe. A dear friend of Billy Graham. And an Anglican. 
Anybody know who that is? That is exactly who it is. Somebody said it. That is William Wilberforce. Well done, gold star for you today. So that is William Wilberforce. The man, and it's no exaggeration to say this, almost single-handedly eradicated the slave trade in the British Empire. If you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, it is a biography of this man's life. He single-handedly eradicated, by years, decades of effort in the British Parliament, helped to eradicate the slave trade in the British Empire. William Wilberforce. Now, I know you're going to recognize this fellow, because he's on our staff. (laughs) That is Brian McGreevy. Of course, that is C.S. Lewis, who was for many years an Oxford Don, and he went on to become professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University, one of the great Christian intellectuals of the 20th century, and one of the great apologists. He's been described as the apologist to the skeptic, C.S. Lewis, the author of all kinds of works, not the least of which are those famous chronicles of Narnia. You may not realize it, but C.S. Lewis was an Anglican. Wilberforce was an Anglican. John Stott was an Anglican. You might recognize this lady by what she's carrying, the little lady with the lamp. Anybody know who that is? That is Florence Nightingale. That's right. She is the mother of, really, the modern nursing movement, that angel of the battlefield who served in the Crimean. She was an Anglican. And it was her Anglican faith, her Christian faith, formed within that Anglican tradition that drove her to a life of service even in perilous times. Anybody know who that man is? Well, you should. He preached here on one occasion. No, it's not Wesley. It is George Whitfield. Absolutely, that is George Whitfield, who in his time was far more famous than John Wesley. George Whitfield was considered to be the greatest preacher in the history of Britain in the 18th century. And then he came here to the United States. Even Benjamin Franklin, who was a deist, was impressed by George Whitfield. Story said that Whitfield could preach without any amplification to 30,000 people and they could hear him in the back of the crowd. Well, Benjamin Franklin didn't believe that. He was a skeptic. So he went out. You know, Franklin was a scientist. And when Whitfield came to Philadelphia to preach, old Franklin went out and he began to mark off He did all of the measurements to see how big the crowd would have to be in order for you not to be able to hear Whitfield. And he discovered that Whitfield could probably preach to a crowd twice that number and still be heard. He was known as the Golden Trumpet, George Whitfield. Now somebody mentioned this name. Anybody know who that is? You said it. Somebody said, didn't say Whitfield, they said somebody else first. That is John Wesley. That's right. That is John Wesley. And while Whitfield was more famous as a preacher during his time, by the time that Wesley died, he was considered to be one of the greatest ministers of the gospel in the history of Great Britain. Many historians say that it was the result of the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield that saved Great Britain from the reign of terror that was experienced in France. In other countries, they were cutting off king's heads and revolution was taking place. But it didn't happen in England. And many people say that it didn't happen in England because of the preaching of those two men, John Wesley, George Whitfield. And of course, as you know, John Wesley went on to found the Methodist movement. 
And that's what it, you really should understand it was. It was a Methodist movement. Many Methodists say, well, John Wesley was ours. Actually, John Wesley was a loyal son of the Church of England to the day he died. It was never his intention to break away from the Church of England. It was his hope that the Church of England would catch the missionary zeal. So he died a loyal son of the church. His father was a church. He was a child of the rectory. Let me tell you, that's something to say. (laughs) That's John Wesley. Anybody know who that man was? That's his brother. Very good. That is Charles Wesley. Now, Charles Wesley is not nearly as well known as his brother John, but you've heard of him, or at least you've sung his hymns. Both of these men became clergymen, but they weren't converted until after they were in the ministry. You never know. There's always hope. But Charles Wesley was a man who was musically inclined, more so than his brother. And he tried his hand at writing hymns, but he just never could get it right. The words just never seemed to come. But then in 1738, he had a conversion. Like his brother, he felt his heart strangely warmed. And all of a sudden, the hymns began to come forth. By the time he died, he would write 6,500 hymns. Imagine that. 6,500 hymns. And they are hymns that you are familiar with today. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my dear Redeemer's praise. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And can it be that I should gain and interest in the Savior's blood. That is Charles Wesley. And Charles Wesley was an Anglican priest, just like his brother, John. Now, I know Brian McGreevy knows who this is, but Brian, you can't shout it out until nobody else gets it. Anybody know who that is? That is. It's Dorothy L. Sayers, one of the great intellectuals of the 20th century, a part of the Inklings crowd, and the author of many of the best mystery novels that you will ever read, Dorothy L. Sayers. Well, she wasn't the first graduate of Oxford, was she, Brian? Female graduate? She was one of the early graduates of Oxford University, Dorothy L. Sayers. Now, this is a trick question. Anybody know who that is? You say his name on a daily basis, whether you recognize it or not. Some of you came across his name this his name this morning. That is Anthony Ashley Cooper. <laughs> That's who it is. That's the Earl of Shaftesbury, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, Anthony Ashley Cooper. Now the Ashley and the Cooper were named for the first Earl of Shaftesbury. He is the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury but he was one of the greatest social reformers in England in the 19th century. The reason why we have child labor laws today is because of Anthony Ashley Cooper. Because in the 19th century, children were forced into the factories. Little boys were forced to be chimney sweeps because they could crawl up small spaces. And it was one man who campaigned tirelessly to put an end to that, to let children be children, safe and protected recognized as being of value, and that was Anthony Ashley Cooper, a devout Anglican, went to church every single day of his life, morning and evening prayer, and he never missed a Sunday service. The Earl of Shaftesbury, a man who could have lived a life of leisure, 
He was an earl, after all. You seen Downton Abbey? That guy was an earl. But he didn't. He used his influence. He used his money. He used his position in society to campaign for the well-being of others. And it was that desire to con to for concern for others that really was a result of his Anglican upbringing. And here's a man that I know you recognize. Anybody know who that is? That's Archbishop Desmond Tutu. In 1984, he received the Nobel Prize for Peace for helping to bring to an end apartheid in South Africa. Many people think Archbishop Tutu was a Roman Catholic bishop. He was not. He was the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town. So you see, even if you've never come across an Anglican church before, you know a great many Anglicans, and they have had a profound impact on the world and a profound impact for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is a unique denomination. It's a church which are, with a rich past, but I want to say to you it is a church that also has a glorious future. I would go so far as to say that I think Anglicanism, more than any other Christian denomination, has the potential to reach people in the 21st century. And it's because we really are something different. We are a combination of that glorious ancient Catholic worship that goes back to the earliest days of Christianity, and yet we've got that evangelical fervor of the Reformation churches. And that is a unique combination, and that's one of the things that draws people to this denomination. Here's how William Temple, who was the great Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, put it. He said, our special character, and as we believe our peculiar contribution to the universal church, arises from the fact that owing to historical circumstances, we have been enabled to combine in one fellowship the traditional faith and order of the Catholic Church with that immediacy of approach to God through Christ to which the evangelical churches especially bear witness and freedom of intellectual inquiry whereby the correlation of the Christian revelation and advancing knowledge is constantly affected. In other words, we are a denomination that prizes worshiping the Lord with all your mind, all your heart, and all your soul. And there's something that is uniquely attractive about that. Now, I want to talk for a moment about the roots of the Anglican Church. You know, sometimes understanding where you come from can be very valuable. Knowing your family history, I know Southerners understand this very well. What do, they, what do they say about South Carolinians? They're like the Chinese. They love rice and they worship their ancestors. Well, there is something of value for knowing your family history. You can avoid pitfalls if you've got a family history of something. On the other hand, you can also capitalize on your family history. You can learn from those who have gone before, either for good or for ill. And that is also true when it comes to the history of your denomination. You can learn a great deal about the church, it helps you to understand the present, why I am why, the way I am, and it can also help you plan for the future. So what can we say about Anglican roots? What can we learn about our Anglican roots? Well, the first thing that you need to understand is that Anglicanism did not start with that man. <laughs> now, that's the assumption that everybody has, that the Church of England came into existence because... That rotund monarch of England was having marital difficulties. He wanted a divorce, couldn't get one, so he kicked the Pope out and established his own church. 
Well, let me tell you something. History is always more complicated and nuanced than that. Always. That's something that our culture could learn before it starts taking down monuments. Is that history is always more nuanced and complicated than you would like to believe. And that is certainly true when it comes to Anglicanism. Anglicanism has deep roots, and it goes much further than the 16th century. For starters, we know that Christianity in England, what we call England today, the Romans called it Britain, goes back at least to Roman times. Christianity existed in England in Roman times. You do know that Britain was a Roman province. In fact, there's even some evidence to indicate that Pontius Pilate, before he became the governor of Judea, having served in the Roman army, served for a time in Britain. And if you go to England today, you can still walk and drive on many of the Roman roads. Now, you've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. That was not much of an exaggeration. Rome was like the great hub of a wheel from which spokes went out in every direction to the four corners of the world. And we know that from a very early day, immediately following almost the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel began to go out into all the world. And it eventually made its way to Britain, carried there by Roman soldiers. Who knows? Who knows? It might have been that soldier who was there at the foot of the cross and when Jesus died, praying for his enemies, cried out, surely this man was the Son of God. For all we know, it could have been that man. You know, that's one of the miracles of Good Friday. That that hardened Roman soldier found himself moved by the death of this man. And I think, this is just sanctified speculation on my part, but for what it's worth, I'm inclined to believe that he was probably converted at that moment. And certainly in the wake of the resurrection. Who knows? He might have been posted to Britain after this and took his Christian faith with him. But we know that Roman soldiers did that. And from a very early day, Christianity existed in Britain. We know, for example, the three Celtic bishops were attending the Council of Arles in 314 A.D. Now, that's 314. Do you realize that that is 11 years before the Nicene Creed was ever hammered out? One of the earliest Christian declarations... Eleven years before that, there were bishops, not just Christians. There was some sort of established Christian presence that had a hierarchy in the British Isles. Now, Henry VIII is not going to have marital problems until the 16th century. <laughs> this is a lot earlier than that. Eleven years before the Council of Nicaea. It may go back even further than that. There is a legend that when Jesus was a child, he was taken by Joseph of Arimathea, who according to legend was a relative. Joseph of Arimathea was a traitor. He was a wealthy man, so the legend goes. And he actually traveled to the far-flung regions of the Roman Empire and took with him the young Jesus on one of these journeys. And they visited a place in England called Glastonbury. And if you go there, you have one of the ancient sites of Christianity in Britain, Glastonbury Abbey. It's just the ruins today. But William Blake, the famous poet, wrote a song that has become the most popular hymn in the Church of England hymnal. 
And it goes like this. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And was that countenance divine revealed upon those clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded there among these dark satanic mills? Gosh, you've got to love that sort of thing, don't you? What we do know is that Christianity existed in Britain from a very early date. And the church in England has its roots back into the earliest days. So that's the first thing we need to understand, that this is a church with ancient roots. Now I want to talk a little bit about how Christianity made its way there and how the Church of England changed and evolved. Because there was a strong, as I said, Celtic presence of Christianity. And Celtic Christianity was a little different from Christianity as it eventually came to be known in England. Celtic Christianity was a little loosey-goosey, and I don't mean that in terms of theology, just in terms of structure. It was a little more free-flowing. It was a little more charismatic. But we're going to see that things became very ordered very quickly. The story really begins with the fall of the Roman Empire in the West in 476 and the rise of the papacy. You may recall that the Roman Empire for about 50 years before 476 had been besieged and under attack by various barbarian groups, the Visigoths and the Vandals and so forth. And what happened in 476 was that the last of the Roman empires in the West, a man by the name of Romulus, was deposed. And with that, there was a collapse. Now, the Roman Empire in the East, in what was known as Constantinople, would continue to flourish for another thousand years. But the Roman Empire in Rome virtually ceased to exist in 476. That was the end. And when the emperor was gone, there was a vacuum of leadership. There was no one there to whom the people could turn in a time of chaos and confusion. And as you know, the world hates a vacuum. If there's a vacuum, somebody or something is going to feel that. And now that the emperor was gone and nobody had anybody to look to, they began to look to the one figure who could unite them. And that was the Bishop of Rome. While the emperor was gone, the Bishop of Rome remained there. Now, the Bishop of Rome had always had a unique position in the life of the church from the earliest days. He was always recognized as the first among equals in the church. Now, he didn't have any particular kind of control over other bishops, but he was recognized as the first among equals. Why? Why, why was Rome special? Because of Paul, but also someone else. Peter, the two great apostles, ministered in Rome and met their fate in Rome. Both of them were martyred in Rome. And so it was always recognized that the church in Rome was unique. Paul's greatest and weightiest of all of his epistles was written where? To the church in Rome. And that church there in the imperial capital had always had an influence that outstripped the other churches. And so the bishop of Rome was recognized as the first among equals. Now, as I said, he didn't have any real authority over other bishops. It was just if you were at the birthday party, he got the first piece of cake. That's, that's how it worked. But in the absence of the emperor, 
With the collapse of the Roman Empire, with the chaos and the confusion that erupted as a consequence, the Bishop of Rome began to exert a leadership that catapulted him to a place of preeminence. And so there was this consequential rise of the papacy, the papacy as we know it. No longer was he claiming to simply be the first among equals. The Bishop of Rome was now claiming to be the head of the church Catholic. So there was this destruction of Rome. There was this rise of the papacy. And by the year 597, the Pope was a man by the name of Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great. John Calvin referred to him as the last good Pope. Well, he's in the 16th century, and he's referring to the last good pope in the 500s. So you know what he thought. But the story goes that Gregory the Great was coming through the market in Rome one day, and he saw slaves being sold. Slavery was, of course, common in that time and in that part of the world. And he saw some young boys. They were blonde and they were blue-eyed, and that was unusual. And they were being sold as slaves, and and he asked someone who was with him, he said, who are those boys? And they said, oh, well, they're Angles. They come from a land named Angle Land. And he looked at them and he said, oh, no, they're not Angles. They look like angels. They look like angels. And many people say that it was that encounter with those slaves from what became known as the British Isles that would inspire Gregory to launch a mission to evangelize the people of that far-flung land. And so, he summoned a young priest, an Italian priest, by the name of Augustine, and commissioned him to take the gospel to Angoland, to what would become England. And that young man's name was Augustine. Now, Augustine is not to be confused with the other Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, the great doctrine of the church, the greatest theologian since the time of the Apostle Paul. This is not that Augustine who lived in Africa. This is Augustine of Canterbury, or Augustine of Canterbury. And he would go on a mission for the purpose of bringing Roman Christianity. They knew that there were Christians there, but they wanted to bring Roman Christianity. You know, the one thing about the Romans is that they were orderly. They could establish order. They brought order out of chaos. And one of the things that the Pope was aware of was that there was a form of Christianity over there in the British Isles, but it wasn't really ordered. It was chaotic. It was confusing. There were things like overlapping jurisdictions. And really, there were bishops, but the bishops didn't have as much authority as those who were in charge of the monasteries. And Gregory recognized that if there's one thing that is for sure, it is that God does not like chaos. If you read the opening chapters of Genesis, this becomes very clear. God looked over the face of the deep, and it was formless, and it was void, and God spoke and brought order out of the chaos. And so Gregory wanted to bring order out of the chaos. He wanted this church not only to be ordered, he wanted this church to be vital and capable of reaching the rest of the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he sent Augustine on a mission he would go first to a place called Canterbury, and he would establish a Christian community there. And many people consider that to be the oldest Roman site of Christianity. 
Understand Christianity had existed long before Canterbury and other places. But for the first time, we're beginning to get a real structure. There are some distinctive elements of Roman-style Christianity. First of all, we're going to get a strong hierarchical structure. It's not going to be each man doing what's right in his own eyes. They're going to impose a structure. They're going to be established lines of authority. You know, authority is important. Some years ago, there was a bumper sticker. You used to see it all around Charleston and other places that said, Question authority. I always thought that was odd. It didn't say question bad authority or question good authority or question illegitimate authority. It just said question authority. Well, if you do not have any kind of authority, what do you have? Chaos, confusion. Well, the one thing that Gregory did not want and Augustine did not want was confusion. So this Roman style of Christianity, which came with Augustine, had established lines of authority, clear diocesan boundaries, and emphasis on synods of bishops. That is a gathering of bishops. Not one bishop exercising control over all the others, but synods, a gathering, a collegial gathering of bishops, whereby they would sit down and pray and reason together. There was a harmonization of feasts and fasts. Over there in Rome, they celebrated Christmas and Easter on two days. Over there in England, they celebrated it on completely different days. And so it wasn't a case where the whole church Catholic was worshiping together. Now, Christmas is an established holiday, at least in the Western church, isn't it? Those in Rome are celebrating Christmas the same time that we're celebrating Christmas, on December the 25th. So there was a harmonization of feasts and fasts. Now, initially, as I said, there was a conflict between Celtic and Roman forms of Christianity. People in Ireland did not like being told what to do. Sort of an Irish trait. And they didn't like being told what to do. So there was some conflict initially between the Celtic and Roman forms of Christianity. And in 1664, a synod or a synod of bishops, again, this collegial element is not going to be one person dictating to another, but a synod was called of all of these bishops, all of these leaders of the church at a place called Whitby. And they would adopt a Roman form of government for the church. This would bring Britain in line with most of Western Christendom. It established a calendar of common feasts and fasts, especially Easter, and it produced unity in the church, but not uniformity. That's very important. Unity, but not uniformity. They were to be of one mind, one spirit, but they didn't have to be exactly alike. You know, unity doesn't mean that everybody has to be exactly alike, like we're just stamped out on some sort of conveyor belt. They were united on the important things, and there was liberty on the things that were unimportant. And that became a distinctive feature of Anglican Christianity. Unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and in all things, charity. All things, charity. But the spirit of Celtic Christianity, while it changed and came under the control of the Roman church, Nevertheless, Celtic Christianity tempered Roman Christianity in Britain in a way that it did not do this anywhere else. For example, kings 
retained a great deal of power in ecclesiastical appointments. Local chieftains, for example, had something to say about who got appointed as bishops. England was a long way away from Rome. And the English Channel was a formidable obstacle. It's not so much today, but it was a formidable obstacle in those days. And so the church was united with the Roman church, but they were a little bit different. They were tempered. They were a little more relaxed. They also retained the right to forbid the removal of English court cases to Rome. So you begin to see that that we've come under the Roman church in England, and yet we're a little different. And the result of all of that was a church that was historic, tracing its lineage back to the earliest days of Christianity, apostolic, it had bishops in succession who could trace their lineage back to the early days, to the laying on of hands. Isn't that what Paul said to Timothy? Fan into flame the gift of God that is within you for the laying on of my hands. It was historic. It was apostolic. It was Catholic. It was no longer out there on the fringe. It was now united with the rest of the church. There was unity. There was conformity. But at the same time, it was unique. It was different from the Catholic Church in every other part of the world. And we're going to see that that is going to prove to be one of the greatest assets of Anglicanism as the years go forward. So that's a bit of a crash course in history. We've only got five minutes left. When we come back next week, we're going to talk about medieval Christianity. Because something happens in the Middle Ages. Now, when we think of the Middle Ages, we oftentimes think of the Dark Ages, don't we? The Dark Ages. But actually, the Middle Ages were a time of great intellectual fervor. The best way to describe the Middle Ages is to say it was the best of times, but it was also the worst of times. The best of times in terms of science and technology and advancement and literature, but the worst of times in terms of malfeasance and confusion. So we'll come back together again next week and take a look at medieval Christianity and how that changed Anglicanism. And maybe we'll come the whole way up to Henry VIII and see how that king and his marital problems fits into the story. So it's a fascinating story. Come and join us next week. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful tradition and heritage that we have as Christians and as Anglican Christians. We have no right to be prideful, but we are thankful. Thankful for what Anglicanism has done, how it has reached the world, how it is unique. And we pray that we, as Anglican Christians today, would have that same missionary zeal, that desire to reach out to the lost. We are uniquely gifted to be able to do this in a way that no other denomination can. So grant us the grace to do it, Lord. Not to be bogged down in divisions and confusion, but to have a clear sense of what our calling is in the world. That we might lift up Jesus Christ and that he might draw all men to himself. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you.